Today from the Global Lane, Gaza Hospital under siege. Israel clears Hamas from Al-Shifa. And that genocidal actor is purposely co-locating in a hospital. What Israel discovered in the tunnels below. From the river to the sea, is George Soros funding the protests? Claiming he's doing it because they are, these are NGOs and they are for free speech and they are for human rights. Anti-Semitic fears on campus. This Iranian immigrant says she's been down this road before. I've actually lived under an Islamic Republic where I've seen the dangers of these things. End of life. Britain pulls the plug on eight-month-old baby Indy. We're very dis disappointed, shocked and heartbroken, to be honest. I think they just made a really bad decision. And it's all right here on The Global Lane. As the ground war intensified in Gaza this week, Israeli troops moved in to clear out Hamas terrorists from the Al-Shifa hospital. What they found there went way beyond medical equipment. They discovered weapons and munitions for launching attacks against Israelis. Joining us with more is columnist, author, political advisor, and former Pentagon official Dan Senor. He's co-author of the new book, The Genius of Israel. Dan, it's good to have you in the studio with us. Great to be with you. Quick question for you on this, because the Geneva Convention, Article 18, says hospitals cannot be attacked only if they're being used to uh, launch rockets. So were they being used to uh, launch rockets here, Al-Shifa? Absolutely. We know that they kept armaments in Al-Shifa. They know that senior commandos and senior leadership of Hamas, who have been plotting and planning and managing the invasion of Israel, were doing it from underneath Al-Shifa. And we know at various times they've been launching armaments from Al-Shifa. So Israel's put in this impossible situation, which is everyone seems to say Israel has a right to self-defense. Certainly many governments in the West say Israel has a right to self-defense. Well, self-defense means getting rid of the enemy. That's the only way Israel can defend itself if it gets rid of this genocidal actor on its border. And that genocidal actor is purposely co-locating in a hospital. And so Israel has to decide, we have to take out the enemy to defend ourselves against this genocidal attempt, which means you know, dealing with this hospital where the, where the commanders of the war against Israel are running their operation. And even the Biden administration has said that. If you look at the briefings in recent days from administration officials, they say, look, we know what Al-Shifa Hospital has been used as. It's purposely being used as a headquarters to wage this war against Israel. And they took care to get the people out of there. Yeah, they, they worked on getting people out of there, and they tried to get fuel to the, to the hospital. And the leaders of the hospital were told by Hamas, don't accept the fuel. Don't accept the fuel from the Israelis because they did not want Israel to get a quote-unquote PR win for giving fuel to the hospital. Israel's not looking for a PR win. Israel is actually looking to fight this war in, in as humanitarian a way as possible. Save as many lives as possible. Exactly. But Hamas didn't seem to care about it. No, because Hamas, for Hamas, these people's lives are just chess, you know, pieces on a chessboard. The irony is that, that these Hamas commanders are sending the rank and file of the Palestinian people in Gaza to participate in some kind of death cult in their attacks on Israel while they themselves live in this very comfortable, you know, uh, areas and, and, and villas and, and live in, you know, very affluent surroundings. Well, under your book, The Genius of Israel, you mentioned, and I've read it, it's very good, by Thank the way. Thank you. I, I read it, and, and in it you talk about Israelis being ranked by the United Nations as the fourth happiest people on Earth. Out yeah. of the 150 countries, they're right. the fourth happiest. Right. 
Is that still continuing despite Gaza and everything that's going on October 7th? Israel has been, I say it's the nicest thing the United Nations has ever said about Israel. They are the fourth happiest people in the world. They, they, over the last number of years, they've been among the top 10 out of 150 countries. So even while Israel has been dealing with all this stress, violence, terrorism, people wanting to wipe them off the map, surrounded by enemies in a state of war since its founding, with all domestic political division, even with all that tension, Israelis are still happy. Now, what does it mean that they're happy? What we argue in our book is it's, happiness is, is almost the wrong word. It's about life satisfaction. It's about living with purpose. It's about living with meaning. That's where joy and reward in life comes from. And what we explain in our book is how Israelis manage to live with purpose. Why do they live with purpose? Why do they feel a connection to each other, to their families, to their community, and to their country, and to their country's role in the world? How does that affect their, their overall attitude towards life? And I think it affects it in a very positive way, even when they're dealing with tragedy. What I find interesting is you mentioned even secular Jews who would never go to synagogue, they're staying at home on Shabbat right. and enjoying a Sabbath meal with their families. Yeah, so in Israel, as we lay out, lay out in the book, most Israeli Jews, whether they're very religious or very secular, every Friday night the country basically shuts down and you've been there, you've experienced it, and they spend time with their family, multiple generations, usually two, three, sometimes four generations, getting together every Friday night for a traditional meal. And what does that do? It does a few things. One, it keeps families together across generations, young people interacting with older people, older people interacting with younger people on a regular basis so they don't feel isolated, intergenerational connection. Two, they're experiencing a ritual that's important to their family that they know the whole country is sharing at the same time. We call the chapter of that, uh, it's, it's one of my two favorite chapters in the book, we call that chapter Thanksgiving every week. In Israel, there's a Thanksgiving dinner every week. And you feel that the whole country is experiencing it. I feel in the United States, we've lost a lot of our national rituals where we've, we're doing something that we feel the whole country is experiencing at the same time. It gives you a, con a connection to everyone in the country. That's what the Friday night Shabbat dinner is about in Israel. It's about the resilience of Israel, and you're seeing the resilience right now, and the book explains where the resilience comes from. Okay, the book is The Genius of Israel, an example to us all, an interesting read. Learn more about it and America's best friends in the Middle East. Dan Senor, thank you for joining thank us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. The anti-Israel and pro-Palestinian protests occurring on U.S. college campuses maybe just a symptom of rising anti-Semitic instruction in university classrooms. So where are these ideas originating? Who's behind them? Who's funding the protests and anti-Israel curriculum? Well, joining us is Dr. Rachel Ehrenfeld. She's author of the book, The Soros Agenda. She's also the founder and president of the American Center for Democracy and the Economic Warfare Institute. Dr. Ehrenfeld, it's good to talk with you again. So this is quite disturbing. American college students shouting from the river to the sea, many unaware that that means the eradication of the state of Israel. You've written extensively about George Soros and his funding, also Arab funding. Tell us about that. Well, George Soros has been uh, funding has been funding for decades, uh, directly and indirectly, uh, much about um, uh, quite a bit of money through the Tides Foundation in San Francisco, but not only there, uh, directly and indirectly. Uh, left organizations and pro-Palestinian organizations, pro-Hamas organizations, even affiliated with Hamas, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, uh, the PIJ, the PFLP, 
uh, other ter Palestinian terrorist organizations, which are actually designated as such by the United States, uh, <clears throat> not only by Israel. Uh, and he has been doing it uh, for a long time, claiming that this is that he's doing it because they are these are NGOs and they are for free speech and they are for human rights. But he is really not being called out, and this is something that the IRS should not allow. When a spokesperson of uh, of Soros was asked, "Well, why are you doing this?" Uh, they said, "Well, we are giving out so much money that we don't know where it ends." Uh, well, they should know where it ends, and they should have known it since then. Moreover, after this, after October seven. Uh, the Soros organization, through tithes and also directly, have been funding groups that organizing the demonstrations now. Uh, he has been funding uh, Rashida Khalid, actually, is, a, is, a, is an honor, honoree uh, <laughs> um, uh, graduate of, uh, of Soros, uh, Soros grants. He has been funding anti-Israeli um, Anti-Jewish state, he doesn't believe uh, and he opposes the idea of uh, Israeli Jewish state. Since he doesn't believe in sovereignty, uh, he thinks that sovereignty is an archaic uh, notion. Uh, he wants open borders. Then you know why do you need what? What do you mean Jewish state? Nationality is 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 bad. Nationality, according to him, is very bad. There is an organization in San Francisco. That he funds, which which actually works uh, with uh, high schools throughout the country, not only funding and calling for the demonstrations, but also having instructions, giving instructions to high school uh, students what to chant and what to yell during the demonstration, and what would be their talking points in order to counter anybody who criticizes Hamas. Wasn't that Balboa High School in San Francisco? Where the kids had the but, demonstration? Yeah, but it's not only one school. The organization he works with actually funds and and distributes material to all to all high schools that they can reach. So this is a big operation. You've done research on this funding from Qatar, from other Arab countries. Uh, in the past sure. 35 to 36 years, the uh, U.S. Department of Education reports nearly 11 billion dollars have been sent to universities by Arab countries. People institutions. So what other countries should we uh, ha have concern about? Actually, uh, $11 billion is a very low figure. Uh, there has been much more. Uh, initially, before 9-11, uh, there was a lot of money coming from Saudi Arabia. Major universities uh, received money, mil millions and millions of dollars from them. And so they changed first. This was given supposedly for Middle Eastern uh, departments. So they changed there and they brought in uh, Palestinians, uh, radical Muslims, Muslim Brotherhood, in order to change the curriculum. The professor who was teaching the subject uh, was really tilting the, 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 tilting the whole history or, or, or um, addressing it from his point of view and falsifying actually history. Uh, Qatar, however, uh, that works very closely, uh, it's really a stronghold of the Muslim Brotherhood. 
and it works very closely, despite the fact that Muslim Brotherhood are Sunni, uh, it works very closely with Iran, who also, the Shiite Iran, who wants to um, also conquer the world and, and impose its uh, radical Shiite, um, a radical Shiite uh, version of Islam on everybody, and if not, they will kill them. So more of, more of this is coming now from Qatar than Saudi Arabia, and we understand yeah. that money has gone actually to the Biden Center at the University of Delaware. How concerning is that? Well, uh, why is it more concerning than money that went to Penn? <laughs> I mean, the Chinese also gave money to Penn. I mean, American universities have been feeding on this for a very long time, and many of them have branches in Qatar. Now, Soros himself has Soros University. He opened his, uh, he, he declared this, and he gave actually a billion, a billion dollar a few years ago to fund this. This was the, this was the uh, initial uh, funding. And it includes many universities, for example, Birzeit University, which is a stronghold of Hamas. It's this alignment of left uh, with radical Islam. So what do we do to change the prevailing anti-Israel, anti-Semitic attitudes on U.S. college campuses? Alumni of these universities should stop giving money, period. I think that everybody actually who pledge, who doesn't like where this is going, uh, and they shouldn't, uh, should pledge money to uh, not to their alma mater because their alma maters have have left them, and uh, they actually they betrayed uh, the whole American American way of life, American values, American constitution, American uh, um, I don't know uh, education too. Okay, Dr. Rachel Ehrenfeld, thank you for joining us. We appreciate you. Thank you. Uh, read the Soros Agenda. College students shout from the river to the sea, Palestine must be free. Many are unaware that the protest slogan actually calls for the end to Israel and genocide against Jewish people. That is the goal of Hamas. So what is happening on American college campuses since the Hamas terror of October 7th? Why are so many young people joining this anti-Israel movement? Well, here with us is Young Voices commentator, dissident project speaker, Tamine Debezorgi. Tamine, good to talk with you again. We saw some big pro-Palestinian demonstrations in D.C. recently, and you're a George Washington University Law School student, so what's happening on campus there? In the past few weeks, we've seen uh, students demonstrating at George Washington University campus. We saw some projections on Gilman Library wall where uh, students uh, sh projected words such as uh, Palestine will be free. And in the meantime, we see that there are a lot of activists uh, coming from outside of uh, university and protesting near GW because our school is near the State Department where a lot of things happen. And uh, in the past few weeks, uh, a lot of Jewish students on campus have been really worried about their safety. Uh, the president of George Washington University, Ellen Granberg, she also had to cancel her public inauguration after she received a lot of threats from uh, pro-Palestinian student groups. Uh, after she issued a statement defending Jewish students. So the situation on campus is not really friendly to a lot of Jewish students, and, and it is very concerning because 
no Jewish student should feel unsafe at a university that bears the name of George Washington or anywhere else in this country. We are a nation where uh, we have people coming from all backgrounds and all religions. Nobody should be targeted for their ideology or for their religion. And you, you fled, you and your family fled the Ayatollah in Iran eight years ago. So do these protests remind you a bit of the anti-Israel demonstrations you left behind in the Islamic Republic? How are they different? Well, a lot of Iranians are actually supporting Israel. For the past 40 years, the Islamic Republic of Iran has been supporting terrorist groups such as Hezbollah and Hamas. And Iranian people know that. They know that the Islamic Republic is not a friendly government to humankind. Therefore, many Iranian Americans or even Iranians that I speak to uh, back in Iran, they are actually standing with the Jewish people and they do not support Hamas. On the other hand, I see a lot of students walking around with kafias. You know, that's a, a, a garments that a lot of uh, Islamic Republic uh, police forces and those connected with the IRGC wear, which to me brings back a lot of bad memories. To many of us, that is like equivalent of wearing a swastika. I see students wearing those kafias uh, at George Washington University, which for me is not a really pleasant scene. Uh, on the other hand, we see that there are a lot of uh, anti-Semitic rhetoric going on on college campus, not just by a lot of these pro-Palestinian students, but also by a lot of university professors. We saw at Yale University, a professor said a lot of anti-Semitic things. We see that at Berkeley Law School, students threatened Dean Chermansky uh, because he's Jewish. So this is a situation where most people were surprised to see, but to me, that is not surprising at all. Because in the past few years, academia has been a place where these ideologies have been supported and endorsed. Well, it's difficult to change attitudes when many of the professors, as you mentioned, uh, teach extreme anti-Israel, anti-Jewish views. So what needs to be done to turn this around so students learn the truth? Uh, one of the things we do at Dissident Project is that we travel across the country and speak to high school students. I share my stories of living under an authoritarian government that forced women to wear a hijab and took away people's economic and social freedoms. We need to educate our population about the dangers of these radical ideologies. Uh, on college campuses these days, for example, if I share my story, students will uh, shut it down, professors will shut it down, they will call it Islamophobic, although I've actually lived under an Islamic Republic where I've seen the dangers of these things. So I think the work we do at Dissident Project is very important because we teach students in high schools about values of uh, of uh, Western liberal, classical liberalism, and also what it is important that preserve our constitutional rights and liberties. In a country where people appreciate these values, you won't see students coming and supporting terrorist organizations on, uh, like Hamas anymore. Okay, you know from your own experience, Young Voices commentator with the Dissident Project, Tamina Debezorgi. Thank you for setting us straight today. We appreciate it. Thank you so much, Gary. The British government this week pulled the plug on an eight-month-old baby, saying it was in her best interest to die. Diagnosed with a rare mitochondrial disease, little Indy Gregory was kept alive on life support at Queen's Medical Center in Nottingham. The baby's parents said despite her disability, Indy seemed happy and responded to their touch. Judge after judge ruled in favor of the National Health Service, which sought to end her life as quickly as possible.
The Italian government intervened under terms of the Hague Convention and granted Indy Italian citizenship. The Italians even offered to pay for specialized surgery put forward by medical experts. And the Italian Prime Minister, Giorgia Maloney, wrote an urgent last-minute appeal to the UK Lord Chancellor, asking for cooperation in facilitating Indy's transfer to a hospital in Rome. But British courts rejected that appeal and another one, filed by the baby's Italian guardian. Judges said the filing of an appeal for the baby Indy under the Hague Convention was wholly misconceived and not in the spirit of the convention. Before the life support was removed, baby Indy's father, Dean Gregory, said he and his wife were shocked and heartbroken by the government's decision to let his daughter die. You've got this country who wants to help Indy and give her a chance, and a specialist who's a specialist in her condition and the heart specialists are both saying that it's in her best interest to have this operation. And all we wanted was permission to go. Folks, this is a gross miscarriage of justice in the United Kingdom. At one time, Britain claimed to be an advanced nation, bringing civilization to the world. Not anymore. Decisions like this show the world that England has descended into barbarity. Much like Hamas and the slaughter of innocent Israeli babies, the British government NHS officials and judges have demonstrated their disregard for innocent human life. I guess it shouldn't surprise us. The British government has traveled down this anti-life road for some time now. You can no longer support life there by silently praying near an abortion clinic without risking arrest or a fine. Although she broke no law, that is what happened recently to Isabel Vaughn Spruce. She endured a recent run-in with the police, but baby Indy did not survive her legal challenge. After hospital officials pulled the plug, Indy's mother, Claire Gregory, held the eight-month-old in her arms early Monday morning as she breathed her last breath. Shame on the UK government. They didn't even allow Indy the dignity of dying at the family home. Folks, this is the consequence of politicians, health officials, and judges playing God. Remember the childhood song, He's Got the Whole World in His Hands? Well, in this case, life and death decisions are in the government's hands. They don't want to leave it up to the one who formed us in his image and knew us before the womb, before we were born. May God be with little Indy's family and deliver the people of the UK from the savagery and shame. Well, that's it today from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on the CBN News and NRB channels, YouTube, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Rumble. And until next time, be blessed.